Hey guys, what's up? It's Savannah. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah Brimer. I am your host on Killer Instinct. If you're new, make sure you just go ahead real quick and hit that follow button. It's free. Why not? I post new episodes here every Wednesday, so make sure you go ahead and hit that follow button. That way you never miss one. So today's case is one that is very long, very excruciating. There are so many different layers to this case. And as you can tell by the title of today's episode, we're talking about Susan Powell. And Susan Powell's case is one that I'd always been familiar with, but I'd never actually done proper research on and I had never actually really dug deep into it. There is an amazing documentary on Hulu if you are interested in watching that. Um, It really goes into depth and does interviews with Susan's family members and her friends and you really get to see the behind the scenes of the case. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Again, it's just on Hulu. It's called Susan Powell, an ID murder mystery. So you guys, as we go through this case, you are going to be very frustrated, as was I when I was doing my research on it. And like I said, lots of twists and turns, lots of layers. I hope that you are either on a commute somewhere or have some time to listen to this because it is going to get crazy. So Susan Marie Cox was born on October 16th in 1981 in Oregon, and her parents were Chuck and Judy Cox. Now, Susan was the third of four daughters, and she was described as the most generous and kind-hearted person you would ever me. She was extremely friendly and outgoing. She would walk up to anyone and start a conversation with them and within minutes you would feel like she was your best friend. Like that was just the vibe that Susan gave everyone was a very comforting feeling and Susan loved animals. That was like her thing. She especially loved birds. Her and her sister when they were growing up they had like a little bird club. Her parents um, they each bought her sister and Susan a bird together and one was a male and one was a female unknowingly and they woke up they woke up one morning and they just had about 30 birds in their cages and so Susan grew a huge love for birds and just animals in general she loved she loved playing outside she was involved in a lot of sports um, through her church Susan was a Mormon and she was a part of the Latter-day Saints church and they grew up in a very religious household and really lived their lives through the church itself. And when Susan was 19, she was living in Washington pursuing her cosmetology license. And she ended up meeting Josh Powell in November of 2000 at a Mormon singles event. So Josh Powell, he moved to Seattle, Washington in 1998 from Puyallup, Washington to go to school at the University of Washington. So Josh did not have the best childhood. It was pretty rough from him and a lot of that stemmed from his father so josh's father stephen powell was the furthest thing from a good example of what a man and a father should be and you will understand that as we keep going throughout all of this he is going to be talked about a lot in this and stephen just for example would share pornography with josh and his two siblings and refuse to really be there for them as a father figure Josh's parents, Terry and Stephen, got a divorce in 1992 when Stephen was about 14 years old. So Josh, as a teenager, was displaying very concerning and abnormal behavior as a teenager, like I said, and then moving into his young adult years. Josh had actually killed killed one of his sister's pet gerbils, 
And along with that, he also threatened his mother with a butcher knife, and he had also attempted to commit suicide. Josh was known to have a very obsessive and arrogant behavior. Friends of his and Susan's um, said that he was very much a know-it-all. Like, he loved to brag about himself and just kind of be the talk of the town and be very much the center of attention. He loved that. And what he didn't like, though, is when people had conflicting opinions with him. But when Josh met Susan in the year 2000, the two of them immediately hit it off. So much so that after eight months of being together, they ended up getting married in April of 2001. Susan was absolutely crazy about Josh. She had kind of grown up in like a really sheltered environment. And like I said, she grew up a very religious household. And Josh really opened her horizons, really kind of made her see things in a different perspective and someone who was very different for Susan. So she really loved that about Josh. And right after the two of them got married, Josh and Susan ended up moving in with Stephen Powell, Josh's father, in South Hill, Washington for about two years in order to save up some money. Josh and Susan then moved to West Valley City, Utah, which is a suburb in Salt Lake City, Utah. And Susan was working as a stockbroker and Josh was working in IT services, so tech services. And in 2005, Susan and Josh had their first son named Charles but called him Charlie and in 2007 their second son Brayden was born and everyone who knew Susan knew that her greatest accomplishment in life her greatest joy in life was being a mother to Charlie and Brayden she loved those boys to death she loved them so much she was completely just obsessed with being a mom she loved being a mom and she grew up in a household where that was kind of expected of her you know she was no she was supposed to grow up and get married and have a family and take care of her family and it was very uh, prominent to everyone who knew Susan how much she enjoyed that part of her life she absolutely loved it so let's talk about December 7th because this is when people start realizing that something was very very wrong so December 7th of 2009 so because Susan and Josh both worked, they both had jobs, Brayden and Charlie would be dropped off at a daycare every morning at about 6.30 a.m. Debbie Caldwell was the woman who owned the daycare that Susan's boys went to, and Debbie, it was like clockwork. Debbie knew that at 6.30 a.m., Susan was going to drop off Brayden and Charlie. She was never, ever late, but even if she was late, she would always call ahead. So when 6.30 passed and Susan never showed up with Brayden and Charlie, Debbie started to get really worried. Susan, like I said, would always call if she was running late, but Debbie hadn't heard anything from Susan or Josh, so she decided to call Susan's workplace, and she didn't answer there. So then she decided to call Josh's workplace, and the people who answered the phone said that Josh had never come in to work that day. So this should tell you how out of character this was for Susan, because once Debbie heard that neither Susan nor Josh had showed up for work that day, Debbie decided to actually drive over to Susan's house, the Powell family house, and knocked on the door in hopes that, you know, someone would answer. Maybe they forgot what time it is. Maybe they slept in. Maybe something happened. So Debbie just went over to check on them to make sure everything was okay. So Debbie got to the house, and when she went up and started knocking on the door, no one answered. Debbie ended up looking around and realized there was no footprints and no tire tracks in the snow because it had just 
snowed the night before. So Debbie started getting really worried and she was worried that the family was inside suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. And this wasn't just some random guess because just a couple days prior to this, Susan had asked Debbie's husband about how to set up a furnace in the house to prepare for the cold weather. And Debbie was worried that they possibly didn't put it together right and could have been suffering from carbon monoxide, which is when Debbie decided to call Josh's sister, Jennifer, and Jennifer, as well as Jennifer's mother, arrived to the house and collectively all three of them decided the best thing to do would be to call the police. So when the police showed up, they ended up breaking a window and going inside of the home, but when they went in, they realized that no one was in the house. There was no Josh, there was no Susan, no Brayden, no Charlie, nothing. Not only was there no one in the house, there was no sign of forced entry. So even if someone did go into the house, it was not by force. There was no sense of commotion or an argument or anything like that. But when police went into the garage, they saw that the family car wasn't in the garage anymore. And the one thing that struck everyone the wrong way about this is that if the family did go on a road trip or decide to go somewhere, they didn't call into their jobs to tell them that they weren't gonna be there the next day. So it was weird for them to just kind of leave town without telling anyone without calling into their jobs and it was a Sunday like it wasn't like them to just kind of get up and go like that so when police continued to search the house they ended up finding Susan's purse and her purse had her wallet her keys and her snow boots and this was very alarming to a lot of people because why would Susan leave without all of her belongings a and why wouldn't she take her snow boots considering there had been a snowstorm just the night before at this point, the police started to think that this could actually be something like really serious. So they decided to call in Detective Ellis Maxwell, who was then assigned to this case and throughout the entirety of this case is the lead detective. So when Detective Maxwell got into the house, he said, again, there was no sign of forced entry, so it didn't look like anyone was trying to rob or kidnap anyone in the family. And because of their involvement in the Latter-day Saints Church, Josh and Susan had a pretty tight-knit group of friends. And when they started to hear about what was going on, all of their friends came over to the Powell house to see if they could talk to police, see what was going on. Obviously, this is an extremely alarming situation. So hours and hours and hours kept passing by and there was still no sign of Susan or Josh or the boys. Police at this point had alerted other districts in the state to look out for their vehicle and police continued to talk to the people who were the closest to them. Then, at about 7 o'clock p.m. that night, while police and everyone were in the house, headlights flashed into the windows and Josh and the boys pulled up in the driveway. So when the car pulled up, the police immediately walked outside, didn't really even give Josh a chance to walk out of the car. Not that he deserved a chance to walk out of the car, but they went straight for him once he pulled up. So Josh rolled down the window and when the police asked him where he had been, Josh said that at midnight the night before, he decided that he wanted to take Brayden and Charlie winter camping. 
at midnight. They left at midnight. And mind you, at this point, Charlie was four years old and Brayden was two years old. So we're talking about really, really young kids here. But Josh insisted that the boys wanted to go out and go make s'mores and wanted to go camping. And then when police asked him why he wasn't answering his phone all day, Josh told police that he wasn't answering his phone because he wanted to conserve the battery because he didn't bring a charger with him. When he said that though, the police were able to look into his middle console and realize there was a charger in plain sight. So nothing about that made sense at all. When asked about Susan, Josh then told detectives that Susan did not come with them on the camping trip and was at work that day. And when detectives told him the reality of the situation and that they couldn't find Susan, they decided to go down to the police department and talk to Josh himself. When a lot of people heard Josh's explanation, they didn't really seem super thrown off by it. Not because this was something that they did often, but because Josh was a very odd person to say the least. People knew that Josh was an odd guy and did weird things sometimes so this wasn't any big shock to them and it sounded like something he would do. When the detectives asked him why he would leave on the middle of the night on a Sunday when he had work the next morning with his two sons, he responded saying that he forgot that it was Sunday. He thought it was Saturday. It's not funny, but it's also like this excuse is ridiculous. Josh really wasn't giving any information as to where Susan can be, where he thinks she was, or really any concern whatsoever that his wife was missing. Josh just kept repeating that he didn't think his wife would miss work and that she would always be at work and that she should be at work and yada, yada, yada. But the detectives kept telling him, okay, well, she's not at work, you know, like she's not there. So do you know where else that she could be? And his response after that would just be like, she, she would never miss work. And so police were really getting nowhere with Josh. So now police are just working with this bizarre story that Josh packed up his car with his four and two year old son at midnight on a Sunday in the middle of a snowstorm to go camping because he thought it was Saturday. So police ended up searching Josh's car and they found a generator, a heater, and some camping equipment. So even though Josh's story was completely bizarre, the items found in the car helped support his story. So Josh came back in for questioning the following day. And when he was first questioned, Brayden and Charlie came with him. This time he was just questioned on his own. And even on the second day, they really didn't get anywhere with him either. Josh, who, mind you, was described as this chatty Cathy type person, always wanted to talk, always wanted to be in the middle of everything, in the center of attention, he just reserved his responses to, I don't know, I don't remember, I'm not sure, and again, showed no sympathy or concern for what could have possibly happened to Susan. Actually, Josh's main concern was the fact that the police broke a window in his house. He kept saying that Debbie, the daycare owner had a key to his house so there was no reason for police to break a window why did they break the window i can't believe they broke the window that was his main concern not the fact that his wife had been missing for now about 48 hours even though josh didn't want to give up any information on what could have happened to susan police decided to go one step ahead of josh so while Josh was talking to Detective Maxwell, the other investigators started talking to the other people in the car that night, Josh's kids. So 
So Josh's mom ended up taking Charlie and Brayden to a counseling center part of the police department. And this is where kids who have been possible witnesses to a crime end up going so they can talk to a counselor if they want. Charlie, who like I said, is four years old at this point, he starts talking to this counselor. She says, so you guys went on this camping trip? And he says, yeah. And the counselor goes, well, who went with you on this camping trip? And according to Charlie, he went on this camping trip with his dad, his little brother, Brayden, and his mom. So this completely was a shock to everyone because everyone's just now kind of going with this story that Josh took the kids on his own camping. But now this throws in a completely different element of Charlie now saying, no, mom went on the camping trip with us. Like she went with us. And when the counselor asked why or if, his mom came home with him. Charlie said, no, she didn't come home because she wanted to stay at the park where the crystals are. So Charlie's explanation is basically that there were really pretty crystals at the park that they were at and his mom wanted to stay there to look at them. And so like I said, this was a game changer and everyone was shocked, including Josh. So Detective Maxwell got word of this while he was still questioning Josh, and he actually told Josh what his kids had been telling the other detectives. So Josh immediately bounced back with, that's not true, they know that's not true, she wasn't with us, and when asked if his kids were liars or if they'd ever lied before, he said, sometimes they do. There's actually video surveillance on the um, documentary that I had mentioned in the beginning of this episode where it shows the interrogation process and shows Josh saying this. So like I said, if you want to look into it, I definitely recommend it and because he wasn't giving up any information or talking about anything detective maxwell basically told him that he could leave and was like you know what if you want to go home you can go home you've been able to go home this whole time you're not really giving us any information so maybe it is best if you just go home josh responded with quote and this is a yeah this is a quote yeah i think i need to think about this for a couple days end quote which, first of all, who in their right mind, when their wife or anyone in their family goes missing, would say, I need to think about this for a couple days? It's completely bizarre. Completely bizarre. So police then got a search warrant for the Powell home, and they were able to find a very small amount of blood spatter on the wooden floor across from their couch in the living room. So the detective described it as almost like if someone sneezed, like that's how small the drops were. They also said that they were able to take a bunch, and I mean a bunch of computer hard driving systems. They took hard drives and towers and boxes and Josh worked as an IT guy so he knew how to work technology really really well and he knew how to hide things really really well. And when police started going through all the hard drives, they just weren't able to get into them because Josh had encrypted them with the most difficult passwords. Not only that, it was like password on top of password on top of password. And so police weren't able to get into them. And then that brought up the whole question of what is he hiding on these hard drives that he really doesn't want people to see. So now nine days into Susan's disappearance, Josh had been named a person of interest. And this was because of how uncooperative he was being throughout the investigation. And the one thing that he did give the police was a DNA sample. So that was the only thing he really gave out. But police didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest yet. So now the next thing they were looking for was a motive. They wanted to know 
why would Josh want to kill Susan? Like, why would he want to get rid of her? Did something happen? Like, what is the reasoning here? Because they seemed like a loving family on the outside. The Powells seemed like such a loving, happy family, but don't they always? So then if things couldn't get any more shady looking, soon after Josh was named a person of interest, he ended up packing his car and moved him as well as his two boys, Charlie and Brayden, to Washington in the middle of the night without telling anyone. He ended up moving back in with his father, Stephen, and they all stayed in Stephen's house together. When police got a hold of this, they were absolutely shocked, and everyone around them was also very shocked too because everyone was looking for Susan. Everyone was looking for Susan, but who wasn't looking for Susan? Josh. And by this point, the media had picked this case up. Everyone in America was fascinated with this case and everyone was trying to figure out where Susan could have been. So Josh, who doesn't speak, right? Like he doesn't talk in the investigation. He doesn't tell anyone anything, moves to a different state after being named a person of interest. And once the media attention really honed in on him, he decided to do a sit down interview. And what he said really blew people away. Josh went on this huge rant about how Susan came from a broken family and she was emotionally abused by her mother who had a super angry personality and her father was incredibly manipulative. So Josh is saying now that because of this emotional abuse that Susan endured, she had decided to run away. And that's why she is now missing. Not very does not make sense to me. It did not make sense to anyone who heard it because why would Susan wait till now to run away? She was already living with her husband and had a beautiful family, had two beautiful boys who she loved more than anything in the world. So why would she pack up and leave all of the things that she loved? Also, there was no evidence to ever prove that the claims made by Josh against Susan's parents were ever factual, just by the way. But of course, there's more. So with the help of his father, Stephen, Josh and ended up making a website called susanpowell.org, which is, by the way, not a website anymore. I looked into it and it's not a thing, but this website presented a whole different theory. So even though he already said that the reason that Susan is missing is because she ran away over the abuse that she endured by her family, this theory is a whole different ball game. So around the time that Susan went missing, another man in Salt Lake City, Utah had also gone missing and his name was Stephen Coker. And Josh's theory, right? Josh's theory is that Stephen and Susan ran away together to start a new life in Brazil. Yeah, so run that through your head a couple times. And not only is this theory just bizarre in and of itself, there has never been any evidence to link Susan to Stephen ever. No evidence to show that they knew each other, that they ever talked. No evidence that showed they ever even met. So this made absolutely no sense to anyone. And no one believes that she's leaving her two boys behind to go run off to Brazil with this man that no one's ever heard of. Like, it just doesn't seem factual and plausible to anyone. So no one is really buying his story. Then two months into this investigation in February of 2010, Susan's parents had enough of Josh's insane theories and accusations against Susan, just like ruining her reputation. And Susan's parents held a press conference. And in this press conference, they ended up dropping a bombshell. Okay, we're gonna take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? 
Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So Susan's parents claimed that Susan was a victim of domestic violence at the hands of Josh Powell. And when all of this came out, Susan's friends started to pour out their knowledge of the accusations now made against Josh. They said that once Susan became pregnant with Charlie, her first son, Josh's behavior towards Susan and their marriage in general took a turn for the worst. Susan kept saying that once she had Charlie, everything would go back to normal between the two of them and the two of them would get on the right track again. But Josh was just an extremely controlling husband and his true colors were finally coming out. According to her friends, Josh would give Susan $10 a week for groceries to feed her and the entire family. He would give her a list of sales items to buy and say, you can take these $10, go to the store, only get these items because they're on sale and bring them back. But while doing all of this, he would then go spend money on all of these extravagant things, including food and snacks that Susan and his boys were not allowed to touch. They were just for him. But he was also buying electric cars, computer equipment, thousands of pounds of wheat. Who needs thousands of pounds of wheat? And really anything he wanted, he bought. But he only gave Susan $10 a week to go buy groceries. Susan's friends say that there were times where Susan didn't have enough money to feed her kids. So she would have to ask her friends for food to feed her kids. Like that's how bad this got. And once this press conference happened, loads of media coverage and tips poured into the police about this case. One man actually ended up coming forward and telling police that he ended up running into Josh at a Christmas party the year before Susan went missing. And at this Christmas party, Josh, weirdly enough, odd conversation, decides to start talking to this man about how to hide a body, the perfect way to dispose of a body. And according to Josh, he said that the best way to get rid of a body is to dispose of it in a vertical mine shaft because they are so unstable and police would never be able to get down there. Police logged over six thousand hours of searching for Susan by August of 2010, but they were no closer to finding Susan than they were when they first started. So when police were at this kind of standstill, they decided to change directions. And while looking at Josh, they also decided to look at the person closest to him, his father, Stephen Powell. So between Susan's family, the Coxes, as well as the Powells, Josh and Stephen, this really became one big family feud. Josh had actually ended up going as far as filing a restraining order against Chuck Cox. But in the Cox's family mind, they knew what happened. They knew who was responsible for this. I think everyone knew who was responsible for this. It was just finding the pieces to pin it all together. So the Cox family decided to host something called a honkin' wave. And based Basically, this is where you stand on the side of the road wearing t-shirts and holding posters with the person who's missing's face on them and ask people driving by to honk and wave just kind of like as a remembrance to them. So this is where things get really 
ugly. So this honk and wave was held at a shopping center not far from where Steve and Josh and the boys were living. And so Stephen Powell took it upon himself to actually drive down to the honk and wave where there are reporters and news coverage and all of that to confront Chuck Cox saying that Chuck was in violation of the restraining order because they are at a shopping center that Josh shops at. And it wasn't even that Josh was shopping there currently. Josh wasn't there, but it was just that Josh shops there in general. So Stephen decided to go and have a couple words with Chuck. Mind you, when Stephen is saying all this and going on his long rant about Chuck isn't supposed to be here and why is he doing this near where they live and yada yada yada, and it goes against the restraining order and it's violating the restraining order and this, this, and that, Chuck actually pulls out the restraining order and it shows that even if Chuck and Josh were in the same store at the same time, that's actually a loud but chuck just couldn't go up to josh and say anything to him but that just wasn't the case in this situation this was on the side of the road this wasn't in a shop this wasn't in a store this was on the side of the road and Josh wasn't even there. So then Stephen took it one step further and said that Josh has journals that Susan wrote in over the years of their marriage. And in the journals, it confirms the things that Josh had been saying as well as a lot about the Cox family that hadn't been brought to light yet. Josh then pulls up in his car when all of this is happening. He pulls up in his car. So Josh gets out of the car and he's talking to reporters and he's crying and he's like, my, and he says, my family has been attacked. My boys have been attacked. I've been attacked and it's all because of Chuck Cox and little did Steven know that he just put his foot in his mouth because the police didn't know about these journals until this point. So once Stephen said that, they knew that their next job was to find these journals. So on August 25th, 2011, the police got a search warrant for Stephen Powell's home and this is where they hit the jackpot. So when police went into Stephen Powell's home, they not only found all of the journals he was referring to, all of Susan's journals from over the years, and not only did they find Susan's journals, they found Stephen's journals as well. And Stephen had bunches of journal entries talking about how in love he was with Susan, how he wanted to marry her, what he wanted to do to her. And when police kept searching in his master bedroom closet, they found pieces of Susan's underwear. They found Susan's tampons. They found cotton balls that Susan had used to remove nail polish with. And they were in a Ziploc bag all in Stephen's closet. Stephen had actually written multiple love songs about Susan. And to give you an example of what some of the lyrics say, one of them says, quote, I can love you in a secret way. I can love you each and every day. There is nothing that I can't see. There is nothing you can't be. It's not perfect, but I'm missing you, end quote. Oh, it's just so creepy. <laughs> that is just so creepy and disturbing and unsettling. And when police found this, they also found pictures of Susan that Stephen had taken. Stephen went as far as following Susan around. He would literally follow her while she went on errands and did things throughout the day and would take pictures of her. He was stalking her. This is taking it a whole step further and I personally do not know why that they were not able to charge him with stalking just because this is completely absurd to me. And the straw that really broke the camel's back was when police had found video and photos that Stephen had taken of two underage girls that were his next door neighbors. He got photos and videos of them changing in their bathroom bathroom and changing their clothes and he kept all the footage he had of this. Stephen was arrested on September 25th, 2011 on child pornography charges and because of this, Brayden and Charlie were then given to Susan's parents on a temporary custody hold. 
Stephen was then charged and sentenced to 30 months in prison. So police's next step in this search was trying to figure out who Susan was in her work environment. They figured out her family, they are trying to figure out her marriage, and now they want to see who she was in her work environment. So they went to her place of work, and what they found out was something that actually no one in her family knew. At her job, Susan actually had a safe deposit box. And if you don't know what a safe deposit box is, it's kind of exactly how it sounds. It's just kind of like a little box that you can keep things in. It's a safe, It's that's what it is. And when the police were able to open the safe deposit box, they found a videotape, like an old school VCR type of videotape. And when they played it, they were shocked. This videotape was a self-made tape by Susan on July 29th, 2008 at 12.33 p.m. And the first thing that she says on the tape is, quote, I'm covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family, that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and living happily ever after as much as that's possible end quote. She then goes through and shows the major expenses of the house. She shows their treadmill, all of Josh's computer equipment, their TVs, all the big stuff. And she didn't just do this for fun, obviously. She did this because Susan had actually gone to a divorce lawyer. And when Susan went to this divorce lawyer to talk about a possible divorce between her and Josh, mind you, she did this without Josh knowing, obviously. This lawyer advised her to document all of their assets. That way, if they did end up going through with a divorce, Josh could not hide certain things because it's supposed to be split 50-50 even. So now, seeing this videotape and watching it all through and kind of putting the pieces together, police believe that they have their motive. And this motive was divorce. They now thought that this was it. You know, Susan wanted to get a divorce. Josh didn't want that. And that's why he got rid of her. And Susan's friends actually came forward and said that Susan had actually confronted Josh about getting a divorce. And she told them that if their relationship wasn't getting better by their anniversary in April, that she was going to leave him. So not only did they find that videotape in the safe deposit box, they also found a letter. And this letter was folded four times and stapled. And it was titled, Susan's last will and testament and on the other side of the letter it says quote do not show this to Josh or give this to Josh I do not trust him end quote so I can't see your faces right now but I know when I read that my jaw just dropped the full letter is online um, so if you do want to google that you can be able to find it and read the whole thing but I'm just going to give you a little summary of it so Susan states in this note that she and Josh had been having marital struggles for about three to four years, and for the safety of her and her kids, she feels the need to have a paper trail. She says that Josh has threatened to, quote, ruin her if she goes through with a divorce. He told her that she will be destroyed and her life will be over. She also states that if something does happen to her, to talk to her sister-in-law, talk to her friends, talk to her co-workers, and talk to her family. She also states that they have a life insurance policy of over a million dollars if either her or Josh dies within the next four years, and that some of her family and friends were aware of that fact. She also says, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Take care of my boys. I want my parents very involved and in charge of their lives. If they aren't there, hopefully my sister can be responsible. I love my boys. I live for them. I chose not to cheat or do drugs because I wouldn't want to risk losing them, end quote. 
If that doesn't just send chills down your entire body, I don't know what does. This was Susan predicting her own murder. She knew what was going to happen, and that, I think, is just what really gets to me on this. So even with all of this information and basically a cry for help from Susan, who is now missing, police knew that they didn't have enough incriminating evidence to charge Josh. They didn't have a body. They didn't have any forensic evidence. But what they did have were those hard drives. So then there was another twist to this. So a man who was running a satellite imaging business in Boulder, Colorado, got a call one day from a man out of state who wanted to be able to capture an image on satellite of a salvage yard where he said he got his car towed a long time ago to see if it had been destroyed. And what is the name of this man? Michael Powell, Josh's brother. So Michael Powell had previously been in the army and a lot of people who knew Michael said that he was the one that got away in terms of being the one person who escaped from the dysfunction of the Powell family. So people were a little shocked when they heard about Michael and his possible involvement, but at the same time, they weren't really shocked because he was also a Powell. So police started looking more into Michael and they figure out that they can't completely account for Michael's whereabouts around the time that Susan went missing. But what they were able to figure out is that around the time that Susan went missing, Michael basically gave his car away for free. It wasn't some old beat up car. Like this was a good car that he basically just wanted to get rid of for no reason. So Detective Maxwell had then sent out investigators to go look at the car and they brought cadaver dogs and the dogs hit on the trunk of the car, indicating obviously that there had been a dead body in the trunk of Michael Powell's car. So police brought the car back to Utah and sampled pieces of the car for DNA to be sent off to the lab. When waiting for the results, police had investigators go visit Michael in Minneapolis where he lived to do some questioning. According to Michael, at the time of Susan's disappearance, he said that he was with his dad in Washington. And then once the news of Susan broke, he went down to Salt Lake City to see Josh. So police at this point reached their breaking point. They were over this family keeping all of these secrets and not saying anything and just kind of this limbo of not talking and not being clear with their answers when clearly there is so much more to the story than they are letting out. So they begin to tell Michael that they have his car. They know about his car. They know everything, including they also tell him about the cadaver dog. And once this happens, Michael completely shuts down. He stops talking and just sits in his chair really nervously. But obviously police can't hold him because they don't have any evidence to hold him or anything like that. So they have to let him go. And after they let him go and a couple days pass, police continue to try and follow up with Michael so they were calling him they wanted to talk to him again but Michael just ignored all of the police's calls and requests to speak again and that was basically that and just when police thought that they knew what happened and thought that maybe they were getting closer into closing in on this case the DNA results came back and the DNA found in the car in the trunk of Michael's car did not belong to Susan Powell so now with all of this happening, Josh is trying to get custody back of his kids because like I said earlier, Brayden and Charlie were with Susan's parents, which in that note, she said that she wanted. She said that she wanted her parents to be responsible for Brayden and Charlie. So between Chuck and Josh, there is a huge custody battle. So Josh makes a statement in court saying that he's never done anything to harm his kids. He's never put them in danger or brought anyone into their lives that could be a potential threat to them. So then then the judge makes a verdict and the judge's verdict is that Josh is not allowed to have full custody of his kids at this time and that he needs
needs to go through a psychosexual evaluation to see if he's equipped to take care of his kids because guess what just like his dad police found cartoon pornography on josh's computer and some of that pornography was incestual so no one wanted brayden and charlie around that and thinking that that was normal and appropriate and things like that so josh was ordered to go through a psychosexual evaluation test beforehand but josh did however get visits with his kids that had to be supervised by a social worker and i'm pretty sure i know i would this judge probably regrets this decision to this day chuck was not happy with this decision whatsoever he was fed up at the fact that everyone kept on giving josh the benefit of the doubt and wanted people to just see him for who he truly was so chuck was obviously not happy with this decision then on february 5th 2012 josh had a supervised visit with his kids at his house that he had rented out and it's the first visitation that they had. So the boys arrive at the house with a social worker who was supposed to supervise the visit. Josh was not allowed to be alone with the kids at this time until he had this evaluation done. So the boys get out of the car and run into the house first and the social worker is behind them. And as soon as the boys run into the house, Josh looks at the social worker, gives her a smile, walks inside and closes the door behind him, leaving the social worker outside. Now this social worker doesn't know if Josh is just forgetting that these visits are supervised or what, but he ends up locking the door and the social worker is now left outside. So now the social worker is banging on the door, knocking on the door, begging Josh to let her inside, but he's completely ignoring all of it. And from the outside, she hears Josh tell Charlie, I have a surprise for you. And then hears Brayden scream. And once this happens, the social worker immediately calls 911 and tells them what is happening and that she believes that this could be a life-threatening situation. This makes me so mad so she's talking to this 911 operator and she says that she starts smelling gasoline and that she needs to move her car out of the driveway that deputies need to be at the house right now because this could be life-threatening and when the social worker asks the 911 operator when they're coming this operator says oh well they need to respond to life-threatening calls first and then they'll get to you and this social worker is furious at this point which i would be too i was furious reading it she's telling him this is life-threatening this man is not supposed to be with his kids the whole thing is just so so messed up in every case of the word and so the social worker ends up hanging up the phone and minutes later the house bursts into flames while brayden and charlie and josh but i don't really care about josh but brayden and charlie were still inside the house and by the time the deputies got there, it was too late. It took hours before they were able to calm down the fire and were able to go inside. And when they did, they found the unthinkable. They had found that Charlie and Brayden had hatchet marks over their head. Josh had actually knocked both boys unconscious using a hatchet and then poured gasoline all over the house, all over the boys, and then on himself while he sat on a five-gallon gasoline tank before lighting the house on fire. This one gets to me. Right, yeah, this one's hard. We still have more to cover, but this one just makes me so mad, you guys, because this one I feel like was avoidable. This was so avoidable, I feel like. Like, there are so many different ways that this could not have happened. The boys did not deserve to die. Like, Brayden and Charlie did not deserve to die. They were, you know, they were so young. They were like six and four. Like, this just didn't need to happen. 
So the days following the murder, police learned the lengths that Josh went to plan this out. Josh had actually closed all of his bank accounts. He gave away all of Brayden and Charlie's toys. And the morning of, he actually called his sister and told her how to take care of the electric and utility bills. And then he bought a huge gasoline tank. 20 minutes before he set his house on fire, he left a voicemail for his relatives, basically a cowardly and disgusting goodbye, saying that he can't live without his sons and he doesn't want to go on anymore. So I want to kind of bring in a little side theory here, and a lot of people believe that the reason, the real reason that Josh killed his sons is because Brayden and Charlie were with Josh the night that Susan disappeared, the night that's all in question, the night that everything happened. Brayden and Charlie were there and now they're getting to an age where they can talk more they can communicate more they're more verbal and so Josh was afraid that maybe they'd say something and here's a little example of that there was actually an assignment in Charlie's school Charlie had to draw a picture in school um, and the assignment was draw something that you did this summer and Charlie drew a picture of a car and he drew him and Brayden in the back seat and his dad driving the car and then he drew his mom in the trunk of the car. So things were coming out. Like this was not going to just go away forever. And I think Josh knew that. And Josh decided to get rid of the witnesses and get rid of himself. And you might be listening to this and just wanting to rip your hair out because I know I was and I know the reason for it. And a lot of other people had this reasoning too was why was not why was Josh not arrested sooner? Like there is so many it's circumstantial but it's strong circumstantial evidence and if he was arrested this would not have happened and the pierce county sheriff department the sergeant from that sheriff department gary sanders who was also heavily involved in this case said that he believes that if the case occurred in his district that they would have arrested josh powell sooner about a year after the boy's murder the police started looking into michael powell again but on February 11th, 2013, Minneapolis Police Department got a call of a dead man on the street who had jumped from the seventh story parking garage to his death. And you guessed it, it was Michael Powell. Stephen Powell never gave police any information as to what could have happened to Susan or what he knew. And about a year after he was released from prison, he ended up dying in 2018 from heart problems. And Susan Powell is now presumed dead by the West Valley City Police. So even though we have no clear answer, Susan's friends and family have come up with a theory of their own. So they do believe that the motive was that Susan was going to leave Josh and Josh did not want that to happen. So he decided that he needed to stop that. But there was a friend of Susan's who went over to the Powell's home that Sunday that Susan was last seen to have dinner with the boys, Susan and Josh. And according to this friend, when she got there, Josh had been cooking pancakes, which first of all, everyone was shocked at because Josh doesn't cook. Josh never cooked for anyone and Josh never washed dishes which he did all of that this night. So Josh was making pancakes and was portioning everything out perfectly. That's like the one thing that his friend said is like he was so meticulous about his portions this day. And it was the middle of them eating that Susan tells her friend that she hadn't been feeling very good over the past week. And right after she ate, she got up from the table and said that she was going into her room to lay down because she wasn't feeling well. With all this being said, a lot of people believe that Josh poisoned Susan and that is what happened. Josh poisoned Susan and then ended up either hurting her or beating her or hitting her over the head with something and then 
put her in the trunk of the car, drove her off, and disposed of her body. Police did test those pancakes, but they came back negative for anything like poisonous or anything like that. But at the same time, police weren't able to figure out if those were the pancakes that Susan ate. So that really wasn't very telling either way. But remember way in the beginning of this when I talked about the blood spatter found on the floor in the living room when police went in and initially searched the house. That blood, after DNA testing, was proved to belong to Susan Powell. Because of this, a lot of people believe that Josh, like I said, hit her over the head with something or beat her and then got rid of her that night. But to this day, we still don't know and Susan has never been found. But that doesn't mean people have stopped looking. Susan's family, her dad, her friends, everyone is still looking for Susan. The police are still looking for Susan. This case is still open. Chuck has said that he is never going to stop looking for his daughter. He will not stop until he figures out what happened. One of Susan's friends said if she could tell Susan something right now, it would be that they have just never stopped looking for her and won't stop looking for her. This case is a tough one, you guys. It really is uh, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, no case that I cover here is ever easy to talk about. It's never it's never good to talk about it's never like a happy outcome really i think that one thing that we could all take away from this case is i think that most people in their lives always come across someone who is in a dangerous situation whether that's in their household with their family or whether that's in a relationship or a marriage or anything like that and you know susan was a mormon and they really didn't believe in divorce and they it was like their last resort they would never get divorced unless they had to and josh was a mormon too and susan knew that and susan stood by that her faith was extremely important to her and i think that you know, for her to go to the extent that she did to get a divorce lawyer and the, to begin with, that shows how bad it was. And Susan's friends told her, you know, like, if you ever need anything, like, if you need a basement to stay in, if you need shelter, like, away from Josh, like, that's okay. Like, come knock on my basement. Like, I will keep you here. And I think it's so important to take away from this case that you need to be a step ahead of that. Like, if you see someone that you know who was in a situation where it's even just a little bit alarming a little bit threatening bring it up to them talk to them about it try to get them to talk to you about that be that person be their confidant and if there is a problem get them out of that situation because getting them out and the consequences of that are usually way better than what could happen if they end up staying with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, go ahead and hit that follow button. I make episodes every Wednesday. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your week and your weekend. I will see you next week. Stay safe, guys.